this is Rachel Lynn, and you are listening to episode 10 of Upstage Left. I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who's been listening, especially those of you who've reached out to me to show your support and to tell me to keep going. It really means the world to me, so thank you so much. In this episode, I speak with the artistic director of the Bushwick Star, Noel Elaine. The Bushwick Star is known for presenting works that challenge our idea of what theater should feel and look like. For example, last season, their, one of their pieces was uh, our last guest, Diana O's The Infinite Love Party, which is described as a barefoot potluck and sleepover. Uh, this coming upcoming season, they have a piece by at Gary XXX Fisher, who is an artist who shall remain anonymous. All I can say is that every time I go to the star, I have no idea what to expect. And it's been on more than one occasion that I found myself sitting in the dark listening to something at the star. So if you are someone who loves exciting new work that challenges you, definitely head out to Bushwick. Here is Noel Elaine. <laughs> Are you French? I mean, French Canadian? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, not. I wasn't born there. I was born in Louisiana, actually. But um, but my me and my grandparents, uh, three of my grandparents, were from Canada. And the other ones was Irish. Mm. So they were French Canadian. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. How long did you live in Louisiana? The first two years of my life. And then where'd you go? Uh, the Boston area. Do you know the Boston area at all? It's a little town. You know, I'm from Framingham, uh, mm. where I grew up. And then my parents live in a town called Weston. Which oh, is cool. near, near, about 15 minutes outside of Boston. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's where I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you get into theater? When I was in fifth grade, I think. I did a summer summer program in our area, in our town, um, and um, kind of fell in love with the whole experience of, like, you know, um, I remember as a kid, like, running on stage in front of an audience for the first time in Hans Christian Andersen, <laughs> and, uh, and being just like, whoa, you know, what is this, what is this experience of, like, Telling, you know, kind of like making this whole story happen and all these people watching and interacting with it. It was just really exciting. Did you have a script or was it like a loose outline? This was, I mean, it was a full production of it. I played, you know, I was like a chorus oh. member. You know when you're, you're a kid, most of the things that you end up doing are musicals? Yeah. But I couldn't really like sing or dance. So I ended up mostly being like, you know, running around in crowd scenes. But I loved, there was something about it that I loved enough to keep doing it. And, um, and then when I um, really got into like middle school, I started to get some teachers, um, some acting teachers who were really fantastic teachers and learning about, you know, more the wider world of acting. We were doing improv and doing Shakespeare when I ended high school. And I discovered I had, you know, some talent for acting, even mm-hmm. though I couldn't really do musicals. 
I could, you know, do Shakespeare or things like that. So I kind of found my niche after a while. It took a, it took a minute. Cool. Was that in Boston? Your te- you found your teachers? Did you come to New York? No, that was that was when I was still a kid in in, uh, in Weston uh, Middle School and High School. Oh. Which is odd because they're not especially the school wasn't especially like artsy, but they had some really fantastic drama teachers at both both schools. Mrs. Katz and Mr. Minigan. They were, like, amazing people. And then I saw that you went to Skidmore. I did, yeah. But did you study theater there? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was a theater major at Skidmore. Oh. Um, which I didn't... I It was weird. I, I was a kind of typical teenager that just wanted to go and, like, be in, like, a rock band. And, like, you know, that I had really unrealistic expectations for what I was going to do and um, how I was going to do it. So I actually went to Skidmore thinking at that time that I was going to be a music major. And this is coming from someone who never really formally studied music and just like took guitar lessons and played with like the few people that were actually like available in my in my town that I knew. And uh, I got to Skidmore and I took like a music, you know, intro class and just realized in the first five minutes that I was like eons behind everyone else who was in that class. And I thought, what am I doing? So I, um, I recalibrated and decided, well, I should concentrate on what I actually know a little bit about, which was uh, the theater department. Of course, I mean, again, I was just convinced I was going to work in the arts and not, um, and was not thinking very practically in any other way. It was just mm. looking in that direction. What kind of band were you in? Like a garage band. <laughs> <laughs> this was during uh, the grunge, you know, era. <laughs> So. Did you like have a good time at us there at, at Skidmore? Was it like a good program? Did you feel like? Yeah, it was. There were some great people there when I was there, so I felt really lucky actually. Um, I mean, both uh, in in the student body and the in, in terms of who was teaching there. So I had some really great teachers. Um, Phil Saltonoff, who. Um, is still uh, he's he was like a visiting artist there for a few years as a as a professor. He made um, did you see the William Shatner piece that he created? Uh, he made this like virtual William Shatner, like from all these like edited clips of no, William Shatner, and it like was kind of an interactive piece where they would uh, audience would like ask you questions. I actually never got to I regret to say never got <laughs> to see it, but. From what I understand, yeah, people would like ask him questions and stuff, and he would mm-hmm. he would answer it. Um, uh, and um, we're actually talking to him about working with him on something at the Star in a couple of years. But uh, he was like a really inspiring teacher when I was there. We had another visiting artist um, named Scott Felcher, who has a, had a company in San Diego called Sledgehammer, mm-hmm. and. Worked a lot with like Mac Wellman's texts. Actually, I got to know Mac Wellman through him and a professor named Gautam Descupta, who's still there, um, who taught like a you know theater and kind of culture class. Uh, so I was introduced to really the more you know experimental side of theater through Skidmore. Also, mm-hmm. City Company has a summer residency there, and so their practices mm-hmm. are really influential there. It's where I learned viewpoints and about Suzuki and uh, saw them perform a show they were working on at the time. So this was 94 um, that fall. They did a show called Small Lives, Big Dreams that they performed there. And I went to see it and I just, it just blew my mind open because I didn't, I'd never seen 
performance like that before. It was very traditional Shakespeare and musicals and things like that. So um, I realized, oh, this, I was never that excited about, I liked doing theater and I liked performing, but I just never felt really like inspired or pa- passionate about it in the way that I suddenly did when I discovered this new world of performance that seemed like the possibilities were endless and people were doing all this really rigorous and adventurous work. Uh, so that kind of carried me through. And then while I was there, we both had some, um, some, you know, some students who were there before us uh, who had graduated recently but still you know, would come and visit or people would talk about them a lot who were making some really crazy work. So I got named Michael Counts who had a company called Gale Gates in the uh, early 90s in Dumbo mm-hmm. um, when Dumbo was a lot different than it is now. And they had a big warehouse space that would make these kind of amazing site-specific pieces that you would um, move through. So kind of like, uh, you know, sleep no more level design, but in my opinion, much more interesting work. Um, mm. the, the work was more interesting, you know, like, and the design was really amazing. So um, people like that had really left a mark um, at the school and... That was really exciting to kind of look up to the people who were coming through there and what they were doing, and that inspired myself and a number of um, people I was going to school with to create a company altogether. We all started working together to make our own work, and um, had a space in town, so we were making our own work and writing our own pieces and doing them at our own space. In Saratoga. In Saratoga, yeah. So Saratoga also became like a really inspiring kind of part of my time there I gotta say by the time I graduated I felt more like I was just part of this artist collective in Saratoga <laughs> oddly um, um, that became more definitive to me than, than the school itself in a weird way but that all came out of being at the school and being with all these people who were um, you know we all felt like an affinity for each other's ideas and really inspired by each other and some great teachers who were like turning us on to all sorts of you know new things we didn't know about so like when you saw City Company or you know the first kind of experimental theater thing were you like right away lit up by it or was it kind of like a, like you kept on seeing more and more and you're like oh this is like opening up I, I mean I remember seeing that City Company show as like being right away lit up by it I was just it just transfixed what about it I just never seen anything like it before. So they were doing that. That piece was specifically taking six of <laughs> that would be all of them Chekhov's plays, and each actor uh, kind of embodied one of the plays, and all their text was from that play. Huh. But each one was a separate play, right? And it was kind of about the end of people like dealing with like the the end of the world. Um, so they were using the Chekhov's writing and grappling with all these, you know, very city company-like, you know, physical, uh, um, this choreography that were, they were, um, you know, it was like 25 years ago, so I'm trying to remember. (laughs) But I remember they were dealing with the end of the world and it was just like these people kind of having an existential crisis as a sense, you know, sounds Chekhovian. Um, But that paired with this like physical, um, um, really intense physical activity, you know, Mm -hmm. these like kind of patterns that they were kind of carving across the floor. They had like these movement loops that they were doing where they're going like 
through it, then going backwards through it, and then repeating. And those were all interacting together. So it was just like watching a dance and a story and um, and this really, you know, just kind of incredible work being done by these performers, you know, um, virtuosic, like physical performance. So all of that together, just like what is happening yeah. <laughs> what is what is this I really it just did you know I felt like my I was peering into a new world of possibility is what I felt like mm. yeah did you move to New York after that after I graduated well uh, we graduated I graduated in 98 and then we stayed in Saratoga for about a year and a half because we decided instead of trying to you know, take this young company we were forming and just moving to New York right away. But we had a space in Saratoga. We all, you know, had, we had homes. We, had, you know, we weren't living on in, on campus, so we could just stay there. We had jobs. You know, we could stay there and um, keep working on the company and our work in a more insulated way, and then move to the city, which was, I think, a really smart decision. Um, there are a lot of. Um, you know, we learned a lot through that running that company, and there was a, there were a lot of mistakes made. But that was actually a, one of the better decisions we ever made. <laughs> and after about a year and a half, then we it was very clear that it was time to get it, the hell out of there. But um, but that then I moved right to New York after that. We brought a show that was part of something called the Chekhov Now Festival that used to be at the um, Access Theater, oh, yeah. not the Axis, but the Access. That's like on. Broadway near Canal, do you yeah, know that space? Yeah. Um, and uh, and I just stayed. I had a, I had found a place with a with a friend, and yeah, that's what, that was ninety nine. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I started interning for Richard Foreman. That was my first. That was my like intro to New York theater, where I started to meet you know the people that I you know, making the first relationships that I had in New York and starting to form that community. So, was was that a cool internship? Did he, like, take you under your, uh, his wing, or was he kind of a jerk? <laughs> kind of both. <laughs> oh, that's, I shouldn't say that's terrible. Richard's, like, an amazing, amaz- amazing artist, amazing person. You know, and he's an, he's an intense person in being a young, <laughs> a young, fairly naive, and... Um, I was always kind of a fairly naive uh, person, have always been. Um, maybe a little less now that I'm 43, but at that time, definitely. Um, uh, he he wasn't the kind of mentor that would, you know, yeah, take you under his wing and give you advice. He was more like someone you kind of learned by being in proximity to and spending a, long, a lot of time with. And watching him work and learning about this particular, I mean, the way he works is extremely particular, um, and, uh, they were long hours and I worked, so I interned on one show and then I was in, I asked him if I could be in his ensemble for the next show. And he said, yes. So, wow. so he liked you. He liked awesome. me enough. Yeah, exactly. And I was really game. I think he sensed that he was like, this person's committed. Like they're, you know, cause you have to be, we did not get paid a lot. The hours were grueling and he rehearses for like four months and then you perform for four months. So it's like an eight month pretty full-time commitment to be in the show. The internship is more flexible. And then I worked, so I did the internship, I worked box office for that show, which was called Bad Boy Nietzsche, starring Gary Wilms. Um, and uh, and then I was in the next show that was called um, Now That Communism Is Dead, My Life Feels Empty. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and we toured a little bit, so that was fun. It was the first time I got to travel as a performing, uh, as a, you know, as a performer. How big was the cast? Um, there were two, uh, in, that, in communism, there were two leads. It was Tony Torn and Jay Smith. And then I think five of us were this like ensemble of, you know, Richard, how well do you know Richard's work? Not super well, embarrassing enough. So. It, no, no, it's okay. I mean, he, a lot of people don't know him anymore because he's stopped making work, and I feel like, you know, he's not as visible as he was. Um, but he always had these ensembles of, like, um, he kind of called them for a while Large Dwarves, was his name for them. Oh. And you didn't speak, really, because... He had some deal with equity where they would consider a stage crew, literally. Oh, okay. Got it. So we didn't get paid uh, equity contract. Okay. You paid like a stipend. Okay. And you'd run around and basically like kind of menace the main characters with different props and weird and dance moves and stuff like that. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah, it was cool. And then... Um, uh, well, yeah, and when you were an intern, you'd watch rehearsal all day and then at night make all the things that Richard kind of like wanted to envision throughout the day. Because uh-huh. a lot of his props are, most of his props are handmade and they were made out of like foam core and gaff tape and paint, you know. So he'd say, I want, you know, this strange thing, you know, I want this, I want a lobster, you know, to <laughs> like, you'll run in and like push this lobster at the person, you know, and. And then you'd, you'd make the lobster. We'd make the lobster over the night and like, you know, a dozen or two dozen other things. And then the next day the person would push the lobster at the actor and then he'd go, um, that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be it, you know? And he'd be like, instead of a lobster, make it a, you know, and he'd come up with some other crazy thing. Would you ever be like, would you ever be like, oh man, fuck this, like, I don't want to make the lobster, or was it kind of like... No, but there were sometimes you made something and you were like, I'm pretty proud of that lobster, and I hope he keeps it. And of course, if you felt that way, it probably guaranteed it would get cut. (laughs) Richard was always kind of allergic to people, like, feeling, like, really good about something. He was like, oh, it must be bad. And I feel like he felt that way about him, his own attitude towards the work. Mm. He threatened to cancel, like, every show. <laughs> You'd get to the end of the four months and he'd be like, It's terrible, it's not your fault, it's my fault, it's terrible, we're canceling the show. <laughs> and then would someone have to talk him out of it or talk him down or, or yeah. oh someone would have to talk him down? His producers and yeah, yeah, and people would be like, I don't think we should cancel it. It's <laughs> it's not bad, you know. Or we uh, or when I was running box office he'd I'm talking I'm saying I'm talking behind the scenes with Richard, I don't know. <laughs> Well then, so so when were you like, oh, I should go to, I mean, you went to Juilliard. Yeah, and he wrote my recommendation. He did, were you, what kind of prompted that? That seems like a very, that seems very anti-experimental theater yeah. lifestyle. Track. Yeah, it totally is. Um, I, well, I like a lot of different kinds of things, and I felt, I feel like I got to the end, you know, working for Richard for a couple years, and then um, in the, also self-producing with the company or some other friends. I was going back to Boston this summers to like do um, some Shakespeare with a, a friend I, I grew up with in high school and we were self-producing. And honestly, I was just wearing myself out and I wasn't really getting anywhere. Um, so I was into the, a lot of the work we were making, but we were working on a shoestring. No one was getting paid. Everyone was exhausted. And uh, I kind of burnt out, you know, um, after a few years. 
And I literally said to a friend of mine, um, when I came back from doing a show in Boston, that had been pretty difficult to do from a producing end. Um, and it kind of broken, broken me. <laughs> I said, um, I said, I think I'm going to quit. You know, I think I'm going to, um, find something else I love to do. I was thinking like landscape architecture, <laughs> literally. <laughs> and, um, he said, you know, you, what, have you ever thought about grad school? Maybe you should think about going to grad school. And I was like, you know, I never, I never did. I never thought about grad school. I was just in this mind state of like, um, our own thing, making our own thing. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Maybe I'll give it a try. And I, I applied, I didn't want to leave New York City. So I just applied to the two best schools I knew in New York, which were NYU and Juilliard. And, um, I got pretty lucky because I got into Juilliard and, um, so, I mean, that's, that on, on the one hand is kind of like actually the series of events. Um, I'm glad I got into Juilliard because I have no idea how I would have paid for NYU and Juilliard basically pays for your tuition. Um, Mm. if you don't have, you know, uh, they look at your tax returns and if you're under a certain income. So luckily I was an independent and I wasn't making that much money. So I, I basically went there for free, which was amazing. Mm. Um, I don't think that's the case with NYU. Um, but um, it also satisfied something else for me, which I felt like was important to me about seeing a lot of experimental downtown work. I was really into things people were doing, but often it felt like maybe the idea was great, but the execution wasn't great. And I really wanted... I was craving for myself to have a certain amount of training that I didn't feel like I had. And I think that's the one thing I didn't get at Skidmore. They were really... They taught you... I mean, I learned a lot of techniques that I didn't know about, like, you know, Suzuki and, and, and viewpoints and things like that. And they were so encouraging for you to go out there and do your own thing and try your, your own ideas. But I actually left feeling like I didn't have a whole lot of really formal acting training. And um, I part of me really wanted that. So getting into Juilliard offered me the opportunity to get that. And I... Um, I always say, like, I left Juilliard feeling like I knew what I was doing, whereas before I literally didn't know. You know, it was all intuitive. You go on stage and do this mysterious thing that you feel like you somehow know how to do or have practiced, but what it is was always a little bit mysterious, and I used to get very nervous because that that created a pretty um, strong sense of insecurity (laughs) for me, you know. so I used to have some pretty big, you know, pretty strong stage fright, um, which kind of went away once I went, once I went through the training process at Juilliard because I literally felt like, okay, I know what I know what to do. I know what to do if I get in trouble. I know how I've like built this. I know like what the touchstones are. Um, yeah, yeah, it changed a lot for me as a performer. Of course, now I hardly ever perform anymore. So. Is that true? I don't think it's true. I see that you, well, um, just like reading your bio, I see that you perform, you're still performing and perform quite... I did, you know, uh, not uh, not last year, but the year before I did quite a bit, which was a little bit of a fluke. Kate Benson asked me to be in her show we did at the Star, Porto, Mm -hmm. and that was great. And then that show moved to WP, so that was great. And at the same time, a show I had been in a few years before came back. And so that same year in between, I did that. 
But that was a little bit of like, you know, um, just, I don't know, it just worked out that way. I don't think that's necessarily going to be... Now I don't, you know, I don't really audition. Right. And I also... Um, don't have a, a lot of time so mm. there's a little bit of a catch-22 there you know it's like well if there's something to come along that I would say oh I'm really going to make the time to do this you know and, and take time away from the star to do this it would have to be something really um you know really worthwhile I would say this is really worth me making a little bit of a sacrifice in this other area of my life but those kind of gigs don't really come along unless you're out there looking for them and working for them, and I'm not doing that either. So I kind of feel like eh, might be a moment where, you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll start pursuing it more again uh, once the star continues to get a little bigger um, mm. and maybe a little bit more support. But um, yeah, right now, and maybe not. I mean, maybe that you know, I love doing it, but I actually really love what I do at the theater and my job there is uh, um, also really fulfilling in a different way. Sometimes I think about if that's like going to lead towards maybe trying to direct, um, which I never did, mm. um, have never done really, but I've started to kind of work a little bit more with people in a sort of directorial way. So I don't know. We'll see. It's, uh, there's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There feels like there's a lot of questions. <laughs> so after you what was the genesis for the star because I did read that it was like you originally had a theater company and like put up shows in that space yes that theater company from from our undergrad was the the company that got that space gotcha um, and Sue Kessler who I founded the space with and the director of that company his name is Josh Chambers um, they moved they were living in Bushwick and found that space they were living like two blocks away walked by the building and saw a sign that there were lofts for rent and rented, the company rented a lot for the summer to rehearse a show. And at the end of the summer, Sue and Josh said, we're going to move in because we can't lose, the, lose this space, which was a smart move. Um, and then, you know, the company continued there for a, a few years, but eventually kind of people started to move on with their lives in different ways, but uh, people were living there. So it was a, a lucky uh, it was lucky that people were using it as as a place to live because that allowed us to hang on to it for a period of years where it wasn't really being useful time and I moved in in 2006 so that's when I started to think like about how we could use it in different ways and then and, and Sue was thinking about that as well so we started to just like brainstorm and one thing led to another so were you just excited about like Putting, it was it was the intention never to like be a performer there more it was more you're more yeah. excited about hosting people yeah I was more excited about hosting people or like creating a creative community and um yeah it, it felt a lot about creating a community and so the intention was not like oh let's create some opportunities for us to perform but it was more that we had the space like how can I how can I um, both attract and serve artists who I'm really ex excited about, whose, whose work I'm really excited about, and get them in this space. So it was more about like, what are the aspects of, what do we have? Since we didn't have any money at that point, what do we have that we can give? Which is really space and time in it. And and our, you know, we had some. Uh, Jay Mori, our technical director, had all his equipment there. So there were lights, there was sound. You know, we had like a little black box theater. So 
but that was the impetus. Um, it was never about necessarily about performing it myself. But the nice thing is that some people would, you know, ask me if I wanted to perform with them once in a while. We'll see if that happens again. And <laughs> <laughs> um, was like the AD role now? Like, did you assume that, or were they like, "Oh, Noel, do it"? Like, no, should Noel should be the AD. Um, it happened pretty organically. Um, because Sue and I were, you know, Jay was on the tech side. Sue and I were doing like everything else, but we our roles kind of naturally, um, you know, went in. Uh, I was naturally um, a good fit for the artistic side because that was I was you know more interested in seeing work and was was more out there in terms of that um, the performance scene and Sue is such a great builder of um, of like an organization you know she really loves that and she loves like creating space for people and she loves. Um, you know, like events and marketing and all the things that she does, you know. Um, and she's also a great uh, grant writer and it doesn't drive her completely crazy like it does me. <laughs> so it was it was a really great partnership. It, it remains a really great partnership in that way. We've grown now, so John Delgadio is our producing director. So, so Sue moved upstate, back to Saratoga, actually. Um, uh, God, now, like four years ago I don't know if that's right but it was a number of years ago and um, so we kind of moved things around where John came on doing a lot of like the real like administrative leading in the, in the office um, and Sue still does like obviously like all the future planning we work as a trio but then she does all the press and marketing and um and all of that work. So, like, whenever you see visuals and things for the star um, and our materials, that's all coming through Sue. Mm-hmm. So it's grown a little bit. But yeah, yeah. In the beginning, it was like a really natural. It was a natural split between the two of us. Like, what our responsibilities would be, and we kind of yeah, just one day we're like, okay, great. You're you'll be the executive director, and I'll be the artistic director. Mm-hmm. But I had no idea what any of those things meant. You know, we were yeah. just kind of doing this thing and figuring it out as we went along. So. Literally, like what the structure of an organization was, an arts organization, and and what it should be, and what it should, what hours should be. Luckily, had lots of people we could kind of call up and talk to about it, who were working in other organizations, and kind of get a lot of information. But for me, it was like a mysterious. You know, it's like I don't know. We were very much just kind of hands on, do it all. So a big shift has been learning how to how to manage a, a staff, and you know, um, that's been a learning curve the past few years. That's been great because we have really great people working with us now. So. <laughs> well, were there any like surprise lessons like? Uh, oh shit! We can't be doing this, or like yeah, yeah, well, oh, oh yeah, well, like like all the times Con- continues to be. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of like a good one that makes a good story because they really range from pretty banal to like um, they might all be fairly banal. I don't know. I mean, we learned. Um, oh, here's a good one. Right before we, the first thing we did before we had a season is we had a performance series that we did once a year in the summer. 
And um, I think the first time we did it, um, I also got jury duty uh, coinciding with tech, (laughs) which was not good. (laughs) Um, And so I was like at the courthouse waiting, you know, waiting and um, talking to people back at the theater to get um, updates and try to troubleshoot from afar and keep them updated about when I was going to be back. And they told me, someone, I think Sue was like, we got an email from the fire department saying they're coming to the space tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And if we don't have, you know, our paperwork, like, they're going to shut us down or something. Which was like, you know, kind of unthinkable in terms of everything that was happening in that moment and how hard everyone was working. And all of a sudden there's this giant you know, potential wrench thrown in the works. And so I immediately was doing this research to figure out how we could fast track getting a certificate of occupancy um, and, and all this stuff with the city. And to my great relief, after a number of phone calls and talking to people, someone asked me what the uh, capacity was of the space, like how many people we sat. Not legal capacity, but literally, like, how many people, how many seats do we have? And I said, oh, I think it was 60 at the time. And they were like, oh, if you have under 72 seats, you don't need any of that. <laughs> oh, you're like, thank God. Oh, my God. It was, I was like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and then the fire department came, and, you know, so we knew that that was fine. But there were so many things that they could have called us on. And they literally just like walked through the space and kind of looked around and they said, we just want to make sure no one's going to die in here. And then they left. That's so nice. They were so nice. I feel like that is not, maybe because it was Bush, maybe because it's Bush they were so nice. Because like in the city and in Manhattan there was like, they try to get you for everything. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know either exactly what the different mentality is, but, um, it, they, they were very kind. They, they, I think they were like, you know, you're a small nonprofit arts organization and like you're doing, you know, stuff that's like, you know, you're not, I get, we just had our show in the park yesterday and the parks, you know, I, when I had my conversation with a guy who's like the parks manager, I, this is, it always goes like this, like he's, uh, this particular man is rather uh, tall and um, he walks up to you and he looks down and gives you side eye like at the same time. He's like, tell me, you know, what's going to happen here today? <laughs> and you're kind of like, well, I've got these activities for the kids. <laughs> so they're going to be drawing and painting and writing and stuff like that, you know, and then at five we'll have some performances. So it's going to be like, a, you know like a performance piece and then two musicians that are going to play and we have our sound permit and a crystal seven and we'll be done and then we'll load out and that's it, you know, and he kind of looks down and you're like, all right, there's not going to be any trouble, right? <laughs> and you're like, no, there's not going to be any trouble. <laughs> what do you mean? But I think everyone's like, are you going to cause, are you going to cause a problem? You know, like, are you doing something that they would deem that's going to cause a problem? I don't know. That could be any range of things, but if you can convince people that you're not going to cause a problem, quote unquote, they kind of just leave you alone in our neighborhood, I should say, in our neighborhood. But it's funny. So your first official season was like 2007 is what I read, or like 2009, is that right? Nine. 2009, 2009. 
10 years now. Yeah. Now. Yeah. 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 We celebrated the 10th season last year. So we've just going into number 11. I feel like that is a very short amount of time. I mean, now when I think of the star, like the Bushwick star, I think it's like pretty much an institution. It's like a... (laughs) I don't... It's very weird for me, too. Like, I don't... uh, It's all gone... I mean, time is such a strange thing, and it's like an accordion, right? Like, sometimes you feel like it's such a long time from that first... When we started, and sometimes I feel like it's just gone by in the blink of an eye, and every day goes by so fast now, but like... Um, I, I still find it very disorienting. And also, it's weird. It's like who... It really depends. I mean, New York has so many different, you know, um, communities. Yeah. Um, uh, in the performance world. And so I'll talk to someone who I haven't met before, and I'll be like, oh, I run this um, performance space in Brooklyn. And someone will say, well, what's it called? And I'll say, The Bushwick Star. And I get, I, I, depending on who they are, I could get someone to be like, oh, yeah, I've heard of it. Like, you know, they act like it's a really big, you know, they, they give it that kind of emphasis that it's like a really well-known space. And then I'll talk to someone else and they'll be like, oh, oh cool. I haven't heard of it, you know. <laughs> and I'll get both fairly regularly, depending on what circles people, like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, travel in. So... We do just keep trying to work to broaden um, the the circle of people who know who know the space, come to the space, you know, keep growing that audience. Um, but what would you say has been like the secret thing, or like the the thing that you've done that has really like helped you, or helped the help establish the star? Um, God, I don't know. I feel like there's a couple of things that were decisions we made that I think have helped. One of them is kind of, I mean, it's kind of a tricky thing because we definitely made the decision that we would, we were going to kind of closely curate um, the artists that come through. I mean, I think that's an important distinction that we don't, we don't like bring shows that we've seen to the star. We, we bring people whose work we've kind of gotten to know, who we really admire to make something new at the star. Um, but there, that, you know, who those people are is something we put a lot of like time and thought into. And it's generally not a place where someone does like their first piece. Um, and those places are so valuable, um, and so important. And it's a hard, I I think it's a hard business model because, um, what that curation has allowed us to do is build reputation so people will come to see someone that they don't know because they feel like they'll take a chance on it because we built up kind of a reputation of, of showing, you know, exciting work and good work. Um, and it's one of those tricky things where I feel like we really believe in, like, um, serving our artist community and supporting them. But there's also, like, a critical eye involved in how we make our decisions about how we program each year and sometimes those, those, those impulses feel at odds with each other if you know what I mean does that make sense? no speak more to that because I'd like to say yes to everybody okay you know I see anybody who's like I'm looking for a space to create work I'd like to say great come here but mm-hmm. but that that doesn't allow us to make more um, 
careful decisions about who we say yes to. So I might say, I don't, want, I don't think this person's work is quite ready or right, you know, for yeah. the space. Um, so that kind of uh, more critical decision making is a little bit at odds with the impulse to just want to say, yes, I want to support you and help you, whoever you are. Right, They're two right. different kind of modes, but we made that decision early on that we were gonna we were gonna be a little bit more um, choosy, I guess, um, in particular about who we brought in. But I think that the thing that um, I really love about the work that we do and is definitely part of the character of the star is that I'm really interested in work that. Um, really, <laughs> this is going to sound kind of silly because of course like all live work interacts with people who are there in the room, but there's some work that just feels much more intentionally, um, has, a, has a stronger intention of interacting and communicating with those people. Like, I mean, you interviewed Diana recently, like yeah, there's yeah. an artist whose whole mission is to create community and, and, and reach the people that are there in front of them. And um, no matter how an artist is achieving that, that's a quality I that's important to me um, and I feel like comes through in the work that we do at the star and 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 when you have that experience, people, you know, as an audience member, you leave feeling really engaged, hopefully really engaged and inspired. So um, I think that that quality of the work we do at the Star, I think, has been, um, you know, just I think is really attractive to people, and they have like an experience where they feel a little bit like woke, you know, uh, like they got woke up a little bit. Yeah. Which is what I want when I go to the theater or go to see a performance. Like I want to feel, leave feeling that way. So. Um, you know, I don't know. That's just my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Actually, that gives me like two really. I'm like really torn right now. Which I'm going to ask you both of these questions. So, just, okay. just so you know, these are relating to what we just talked about. So, the first thing is like, has there been anything that you've curated where where you've like been like, I'm going to bring on this artist, and then the end pro or whatever they end up making is like, you're like, oh, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be, and. Uh, like, obviously you don't have to name any names, but have you ever had experience of, like, presenting something that you're kind of like, oh, I don't know about this. Well, the way we... <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I won't name any names, because I don't want to do that. And, uh, and, and honestly, like, very seldom um, have I thought that way, um, I'm happy to say. And I think largely that's because I, I want to be... I, I don't necessarily come in with a preconceived notion of what they should do and usually if I'm working with an artist whose work I'm really into like I want them I want them to surprise me um, and often the project will kind of change as it's getting developed so I mean Diana's was a good example of that um, it was one one idea that you kind of pitched and then it sort of evolved into the infinite love party and I definitely had other Aaron Markey's uh, um, changed their show after their summer residency and realized that the show honestly it was a practical decision the show that we had been talking about they realized it was just going to be too big mm -hmm. for the time and the money we had so um, 
like a smart uh, performance maker, <laughs> shifted gears to something that they could make really well and, and made singlet, which I also loved. So I, what I learned at a certain point was make sure you go through the steps with the artist. Don't just make like a, you know, if I see one thing and then say, great, yeah, you know, we should work with this person. That's not a good, that's not a good decision to make because who knows if that was just that one moment and I was attracted to something in that piece, but that's not really like the core of what that artist is about. Um, so getting to know someone over a little bit of a period of time, I get to know what that artist is about and what they're trying to do with their work. And usually that means that, you know, what they end up doing at the star is still going to be from that place. And so I'm not going to like feel, you know, uh, blindsided by it. Um, <laughs> but early on, I'd say there were maybe one or two times where I made that mistake because I hadn't, I hadn't learned that lesson yet. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then um, my second question is because we're talking about Diana, who I interviewed last episode, um, and Infinite Love Party, she you know she pitches it as a potluck for like QTPOC yeah. and allies. Yeah. I am guessing you identify as an ally. I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, thinking about shows that are like in the zeitgeist right now, like Fairview, yeah. uh, and that um, I don't know if you read this op-ed piece that was about like the dominance of the white male critic. The one that, yeah, yeah, that it was Jesse Green and... No, it was, it was actually two women of color who wrote it, and it was kind of about, it, it wasn't the interview, it wasn't the response to Fairview. That's what I would read, yeah. Um, but this, this is so, I, I don't want to give away this, the ending to Fairview for people who haven't seen it, but... <laughs> Although they do in that, uh, in they that, do in that, that particular, interview, yeah. yeah, yeah, so, uh, don't read that interview with Jesse Green and, um, the other critic, I can't think of her name. I can't either. Um, but... Um, the article about the dominance of the white male critic is kind of that that article asks like the white male critic to step aside and then there was a, the, um, a reply a rebuttal to it by a white male critic that was kind of like this is extremely naive um, like that is you know like we should be welcoming diversity of voices but you can't be asking people to leave their positions where do you see like you know this is not a spo if you if you don't know Noel, he's a white male. <laughs> <laughs> not a secret. <laughs> it's not a secret. Um, like, where where do you see your role as an ally, especially in a position of leadership? Totally, it's such a it's a really good question and a, a hard one, right? It's something we think about a lot. Um, uh, did the um, um, the um, oh my god, I'm blanking on the, the name of the organization. The People's Institute uh, um, training, um, the PSUB training, and that was like, I feel like this theme that comes up when talking about these issues from white people specifically to say like, part of me feels like the best thing I could do would be to disappear, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the answer um, is not, you know, is that is not the answer, and a lot of people reflect that to you, you'd be like, okay, I... That's not the point. Mm -hmm. And um, when thinking about how to be um, a good ally as a straight, cis, white man 
in a in like a you know executive position at my organization which you know feels like okay well that I'm part of, I'm part of the problem um, objectively you know if you're looking at like who holds those positions and in institutions mm-hmm. but also saying I'm you know I I'm a person who started my own organization that is you know doing a lot of work to like make it uh, run well and um, serve my community and my artist community um, that would it be um, would it be helpful for me to stop doing that um, and, where, and what do I do if I don't do it right what, what would the other thing be that I would do this is something that I don't have a lot of like I don't have a lot of choices, right? So this, I'm kind of like walking through the like, you know, steps of figuring out like the answer to this question from like scratch, you know, you kind of Mm -hmm. go through all these phases of being like, well, what, you know, I think at the end of the day, when you, when I'll speak, just speak for myself with like all of this kind of chatter, like settling down, the answer really is about, um, trying to be a productive part of not only, you know, the community, but also the part of the dialogue, um, which means putting your ego aside, n- number one, you know, mm-hmm. any kind of like, you know, defensiveness or that kind of thing that just happens with like white fragility, like putting, you know, this thing where people take it personally when someone's talking about, you know, white supremacy in our country and people are like, but that's not me, you know. Um, it's beside the point, right? It's not about you. It's about the organi- It's about the organization of the culture. It's about the systems that we live in, and um, it, the more white people that take that acknowledge that, the sooner we start moving away from that because you're creating a structure that um, where, where people aren't in denial of the thing that is actually like the organizing principle of most of our lives from the top down. So I guess it's been a a journey for me to try to go through that education and um, continued education for myself because I did not grow up in a culture that where people talked about these things. I very much grew up in the like insulated kind of this is just normal type of society. Yeah. So the ongoing self-education and engagement with this stuff is like step one and then step two is something we talk about at the star which is like how do we keep evolving this organization where it becomes less and less what it was from the beginning which was like a white run organization so as we grow you know how are we how are we growing our organization diversity in all ways how are we and that's where problematic word but I often struggle to figure out like what the better one is to use um how do we keep educating ourselves about those language being used issues that we might not be aware of that we should be thinking about um we have like kind of a constant you know series of like meetings throughout the year where we kind of get together as staff and discuss some of these things um and then and then programming I mean Programming is kind of an easy thing to do, um, to say like, well, we're not going to have like a season of like all, you know, 
white artists or, you know, male artists or trying to, like, really work towards, you know, a, uh, a really represent, uh, representative group of people in each season, which um, that's that can be the easy part. And often I feel like that's the part that people... Um, say, well, that's great, but that's not enough, right? You have to kind of look at your whole, look, look at the whole system, the whole organization, these things. It can't just be like white institutions creating slots for artists of color to be in. Like how mm-hmm. is, that's, that's great if you're creating platforms for people, but how is the whole like system of work starting to evolve and change and become um, less, you know, representative of like a white supremacist culture so you know that's kind of like a big messy spiel about like all the things <laughs> i am thinking about and we are thinking about like um at the star about that process but you know in like in our neighborhood we're in a neighborhood that's like a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood and has been for years and we're part of that gentrification whether we like it or not you know so this has been a big question in our neighborhood too, specifically like if you, how do, how do we serve, how do we become a resource in our neighborhood and not like, um, at the worst, a kind of tool for the gentrification machine that's also, you know, kind of separate from the community that was already living in that neighborhood. Um, and, and, you know, kind of like the, 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 the best version of the worst, which would be, you know, we kind of run some programs that, you know, uh, work with kids, but don't really do any other kind of real like engagement or don't, or say our doors are open to everyone, but don't really do anything to like actually make that mean something. And we've been doing a lot of work over the last 10 years to keep developing how we are like a neighborhood institution. Um, And that's uh, the thing that I think I learned over the first five years of trying that out, um, especially is that that's about relationships. I mean, that is literally about building relationships one at a time Um, because it's about building trust with people. Yeah. And building the sense of they understand who you are, why you're there, what you want, what you're providing, but what, you know, why you're doing it. All of those, um, that sense of trust and also that they're like, oh, I see what you're doing and, and great, that's good, that's needed. Like, you're providing something that actually needs to be provided. Um, that takes a long time. And... You know, it's taken us 10 years to get to a place where I feel like we have real neighborhood partners that it's not just like, oh, we're being nice to each other. It's like we have a partnership. We rely on each other for certain things. We work together, not just in this more, you know, when you first start, it kind of feels like a tentative agreement, you know, yeah. to say, how's this going to go? Do you feel like your the aesthetic of the Bushwick Stark speaks to the neighborhood or, or has it been influenced? Like, what has that been? Well, uh, to to some people, I mean, it's it's uh, it's definitely a tricky thing because you're like, well, you know, anybody can come see the show, but like, who wants to come see the show? Like, who you know? I mean, the shows are. I mean, I think the thing at the end of the day is like, the neighborhood 
it, it's easy to say like there's this gentrif- you know gentrifying group of people coming in and then there's the like you know largely um, Puerto Rican Mexican Dominican uh, Ecuadorian population there that people can like lump into you know just like like Latinx community and um, but the truth is when you start drilling into the actual community there's there's some people who are really excited about the work that we do there's some people who could care less like it's just as you know it's way more it's way more complicated a picture than you know kind of just these 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 you know bird's eye view of the whole thing so the nice thing about these partnerships is um you know we have kids who now for a couple of years, kids, I mean, it's young people, students who have been coming to see stuff at the star and we do a lot of different things too. So, um, but they've gotten that like wide range of experiences and now, you know, they know what they like, they know what they don't like. Mm. Um, I'd say with the young, I mean, the older generations, a little harder to get them. Uh, I've seen less of the older generation get really engaged with what we do at the star. But I've seen a lot of the young people get really engaged. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's, I mean, honestly, that's kind of exciting because I hope in another 10 years, you have like a whole community of young people who grew up in the neighborhood going to the star, you know, yeah. and it won't be a new organization to them. It'll be like that neighborhood theater that they go to. That's cool. Last question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, any intention on hosting Richard Foreman anytime soon at the star? <laughs> <laughs> Richard, I don't think Richard's really. I don't. I think he's kind of retired. I don't. I. I don't know if he's making work anymore. But you'd work with him again? <laughs> if Richard him. wanted to come make a piece at the Star, oh yeah, but I think the public would probably snatch him up first. I think the last thing he made was there. And it was <laughs> well, your lobster making services, I'm sure he'll welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, if you're listening, I, I, it was an honor to make lobsters for you for two years. Thank you, Noel. Thanks for having me. <laughs>